Here we go. We are starting Romans chapter 12 today. Having finished that very important section of Romans, Romans 9 through 11. And, uh, yes, uh, last week. And uh, so we are starting chapter 12. And, and originally uh, I was uh, hoping to do only two verses. But as I studied those two verses, I realized we're not going to get two verses done today. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I'm getting more realistic as time goes on, I guess. But, uh, so today we just want to look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And, uh, and it fits within the context of verses 1 and 2 that really go together, uh, as you'll see. Uh, but last week we were looking at that last part of chapter 11, verses 33 through verse 36. So kind of look down at those verses and try to think about what are some of the things that we talked about last week? What are things that stuck out to you? Or maybe some questions you still have left over from last week. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Kind of just the ultimate unknowability of the mind of God. The un, he, talk, he talks about it being unsearchable or unfathomable. His judgment and His ways are unsearchable or unfathomable. And that's... And what is it that leads Paul to talk about that? What what prompts Paul to say that uh, here at the end of Romans chapter? His mercy to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and then again to the Jews. Okay. And it's just his way he works out his grace and mercy. Okay. Okay. So, so he he'd been talking throughout those three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, he'd been talking about how God had worked in salvation history. And and as we look at it from a temporal viewpoint, from our kind of very limited frame of reference, uh, it's, it's, it's impossible to see how God is doing things or what God is up to. Uh, and and, and so, so Paul talks about how God is hardens some people and he's shown mercy to others and then he kind of reverses it and he shows mercy to these and he hardens these and and all these things are going on through salvation history. But any individual looking from their particular time frame, from their perspective, they can't see the overall picture. So they can't see God's ways. They can't see what God is doing. God's ways are unsearchable or unfathomable. And... and uh, and as we saw, what God was really up to in all of that was He was working through salvation history in order to make His mercy available to all. He said He has shut up all into sin in order that He might show mercy to all. So that's ultimately what God was about. But we can't see that. We don't know that. How is it we come to know that? How do we come to know this thing about the mercy of God and how it was being worked out in salvation history. How, how do we find that out if God's 
know if God's knowledge and God's wisdom and God's ways are so unsearchable, how is it that we're standing here talking about them? Well, through Jesus is one way, yes. We talked about last week how Jesus has been made, he says in Corinthians, has been made unto us the wisdom of God. So, one way we see the, the mind of God is in Christ Himself. And what's the other way? Okay, through the Scripture, through Revelation. So, so when, when, say for example, uh, Job, as, as, uh, uh, as we were just pointing out just now, as it talks about in Job, or as he talks about here in the end of chapter 11, when, when Scripture talks about the unknowability of the mind of God, the unfathomability of the mind of God, from a human perspective, it's not saying that God cannot be known at all. God can be known, and we talked about two ways that God could be known. One of them is, is through the things that He has revealed. And so, chapters 9 through 11 is one case where there is a mystery. Remember, we talked about mystery and what mystery is in Scripture. Mystery is something that was once hidden known only to God, which has now been revealed for public dissemination, for public knowledge, okay? So, uh, Paul has been talking about this mystery of how God had worked in salvation history with the Jews and the Gentiles. And so, although uh, just because of our limited finite minds, we could never have figured that out. We could never have known that that's what God was doing. Yet, this is one of those mysteries revealed that Paul tells us about and that, that revelation comes through Scripture. God has revealed through Scripture His mind. So one of the things we discovered last week is that although the mind of God is so infinite and so vast and so great and to our finite mind so unknowable, we have these little what I call peepholes into the mind of God, okay? And the two peoples we have are the mysteries about God that are revealed in Scripture and Christ Himself. Those two things constitute the little peepholes through which we can look and we can see a little tiny bit of the reality of the mind of God. And so when we look through the peephole of Romans 9 through 11, what do we discover about the mind of God? What do we discover about God in this peephole of Romans 9 through 11? Okay, okay. Uh, but on a broader scale, what's the, what's the broad picture that we get of God? That He's merciful. That He's a merciful God. So, so while we... we we perceive about God that He's this great unknowable in one sense uh, and that all things, as He says there at the end of the chapter, all things are, are uh, by Him and through Him and to Him. So everything is wrapped up in Him. Yet, there's no reason for us to fear or be afraid of Him because we, in a, in a negative sense, because we discover that He's a God of mercy. And that in all of his working in salvation history, what he's been doing is he's been working to show mercy to all. He's been wanting to show mercy to all. And uh, so, so Paul has this, um, what we might call this hymn of praise or this doxology here at the end of Romans chapter 11 where he just bursts out 
into all this praise and adoration of the greatness of God and the mind of God and how awesome it was to Paul that God could, could think up such a marvelous plan and carry out such a marvelous plan of providing a means of salvation for all the human race and providing uh, and, and moving to make sure that all the human race, that every race of human beings, uh, both Jew and Gentile and all the nations, that they could all hear and know and learn about the gospel of Christ and so have an opportunity uh, to experience the mercy of God. And so this is, this is where Paul is by the time he gets to chapter 11. And as I indicated, uh, we, have a, we have a significant shift at the end of chapter 11 as we move from chapter 11 into chapter 12. The way one commentator puts it, uh, a guy by the name of Douglas Moo, he says, we move from the indicative to the imperative. He's using grammatical terms there. Uh, when we talk about things in the indicative in, in, in grammar, we, we're talking about when we're using the indicative, we're, we, we are indicating things. We are talking about the things that are. Okay? And what Paul has been doing through the first 11 chapters of Romans is he's been telling us the way things are. Okay? But then we are moving from the indicative of chapters 1 through 11 to the imperative of verses of chapters 12 uh, through particularly 15. Uh, 16 is, is more greetings and things like that, as you'll see as we get there. So the next four chapters, 12, 13, 14, and 15, are are in the kind of what we might say the imperative. In other words, uh, when, when in grammar, when we're talking about imperative, we're talking about the things that we are to do, the commandments, the, the, the things uh, that we are to obey. Okay? So we are moving at the end of, from the end of chapter 11 into chapter 12. We are moving from the indicative to the imperative. We are moving from the way things are, a description of the gospel and what God has done in the gospel and how He is... He has shown His mercy in the Gospel and our condition, our hopeless condition of being uh, sinners and being uh, alienated from God and now being reconciled to God through Christ. Okay, So that's all the indicative. That's the way things are. Given the way things are, what is the imperative? How then shall we now live, as Francis Schaeffer puts it? Okay, That's the question. How shall we now then live? So we have this major shift in emphasis from the from the uh, 11:36 into 12:1, we have this major shift in emphasis, and so it's very easy when we read Romans and we get to chapter 12 for our minds to kind of shift and almost forget everything we've read before. Okay, but that's a terrible mistake because chapter 12, verse 1, is picking up right from the thoughts that he had just been expressing at the end of chapter 11. You'll notice. Right there at the beginning of verse 12, what's the first word in your English translation? Therefore. Well, some translate. Depends on how it translates. Actually, in the Greek, it's not the first word. It's about the third or fourth word. But in many, any, in many English translations, the very first word is therefore. 
which always we understand, of course, links what's about to be said with what has just been said. Okay. Now, commentators, uh, many commentators think that when Paul says, therefore, here in chapter 12, verse 1, let's just read the verse. Let's read these two verses. Like I said, we'll only talk about verse 1 today. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living uh, excuse me, your body is a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, now, uh, going back to this idea then of therefore, Paul is, Paul is, what he is about to say in verses 1 and 2, he is linking it to something that's gone before. And as I was just about to say, many commentators uh, understand that when he's using the word therefore here, uh, he's signaling that the things he's about to say are tied not just to the verses or even primarily to the verses just before it, but are really tied to all that he has said in chapters 1 through 11. Given all that we've said about man's condition in sin and that God has provided a way in Christ and that way is through faith and, and uh, that we are now freed from the law and we are uh, freed to live our lives for righteousness' sake. We no longer need to present our bodies to, as the members of our bodies as instruments of sin, but rather as instruments of righteousness. And, uh, and then he talks about how the law has been used by God to lead us to Christ in chapter 7. Uh, and, and then we get into chapter 8 and we discover all about the life of the Spirit. And then we get this vast, this over grand, grand overview of God's redemptive work in salvation history in chapters 9 through 11. And in view of all of that, then, he says, therefore, do this. Okay. And so most commentators, when they, when they view the, the link here of therefore, uh, they, they view it going back uh, and, and, and viewing kind of all of what Paul has said. And, and I think that there is some degree... Of, of validity to that, but but as I read Romans, I have to remember it was not written in chapters, right? So as I read, as I come down to the end of chapter eleven and I go in chapter into chapter twelve, I have to remember that as Paul is dictating this to his secretary, as he's there under house arrest in Rome, and he's dictating this letter to his. Uh, secretary that's writing it out for him and will be introduced to him when we get to chapter 16. But uh, as he's dictating it, there's not a big break, you know. He doesn't say, well, okay, that finishes that part of the letter and, you know, and next week we'll start on part two, you know. But it just flows right in. And what he's been talking about right here at the end of chapter 11, is this idea of the mercy of God. Now, we have to understand, of course, that the mercy of God that he's talking about is the mercy of God in the gospel, right? So, certainly, he's talking about everything that he said from chapter 1 through chapter 11. 
But what really prompts him and what really leads him into what he's going to say, his segue, so to speak, into all that he's going to say in this imperative voice, if you will, in this, okay, how shall we then live that we're going to get into now in chapters 12 and 13 and 14, 15. What really moves him into that is this sense of overwhelming gratitude to God for the mercy that He has made available to all through salvation history and through His whole salvation plan. So, I really think the therefore here really does very closely tie us to the idea of the mercy of God that we have seen revealed in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and particularly there at the, at the end of chapter 11. Now, uh, these two verses in particular, verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12, are very familiar to us, are they not? Okay. Uh, why are they so familiar to us? Okay, had to learn them, had to memorize them. Many of us did memorize these verses when we were much younger, okay? Because they're great verses to use in evangelism and, and, and at other times. Uh, why else? How many of you ever heard a sermon on Romans, 9, or Romans 12, 1 and 2? Nobody raises their hands. I know you're lying. <laughs> I've heard a bunch. I've heard this passage preached or taught or I've read about it over and over again. Particularly, I heard it a lot when I was a young person, when I was in youth groups, and when I was in a young adult. Uh, uh, I oftentimes heard this passage referred to. It's a, it's a passage that's particularly useful in talking to young people, is it not? As they're beginning to set out on their kind of you know, they're making all these big decisions about life, you know. What kind of a career am I going to have? What kind of a person am I going to marry? You know, what school am I going to go to? You know, how am I going to live in this world as a, as a Christian going out into the world? And these two verses in particular are great verses when addressing young people and helping them kind of get a point of reference for their life. And, uh, and so, uh, many of us, I think, probably particularly earlier in our lives, were exposed to these verses and, and had opportunities to think about them. But the question I was asking myself this week was, well, when did these verses stop being relevant to us? You know, at what point in my life do I no longer need Romans 12, 1 and 2? And then the other question I asked myself is, have I, have I become so familiar with Romans 12, 1 and 2 that it's no longer vibrant to me. You know, when I was younger, Romans 12, 1 and 2, you know, when I would read them, they, they did something to me. They fired me up. They fired my imagination. I, I was captivated by these verses. But I wonder, as we get older, some of those passages in Scripture that when we were younger really kind of lit our fire, do they still light our fire? Or have they become so familiar to us that they have bred contempt. Uh, well, certainly probably not contempt for most of us, I hope. But have they just become verses that no longer fire the imagination? Well, I hope that's not the case. And I would certainly hope as we take time today to look at verse 1 and then next week as we look at verse 2 that 
that God will give us kind of fresh thoughts and fresh insight and reinvigorate in us some of the excitement of the possibilities that are represented in verses 1 and 2. Now, we have to remember that when Paul writes Romans 12, 1 and 2, he's writing to the church where? In Rome. Okay? Keep that in mind. We're not talking here about writing to a little church in Colossae or a little church in Thessalonica or something. But we are talking about him writing to the Christians who are in the capital of the empire. These people live in the megapolis, if you will, of the, one, of the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest city in the ancient world of the first century. Okay. This is Rome. This is where the emperor lives. This is where the, Senate, the Roman Senate rules. This is where the, the whole center of the whole Mediterranean world and beyond is located, is focused right here in Rome. And this is where these Christians live and function every day of their lives. And that's going to be important as we begin to kind of unpack, uh, to use a cliche, as we begin to unpack verse 1. It's going to be important for us to understand that these people aren't living out somewhere in the hinterlands, but they are living in Rome. And as they seek to live out their lives and express their Christian faith, they are having to do it not in some obscure place where it doesn't make a lot of difference or we might not think it makes so much difference. But they're having to do it in the city of Rome, rubbing shoulders with the most powerful, most influential people in the world. And in a culture and in a society that is permeated with paganism and worldliness. This is where these people function every day of their lives. Okay, And so verses 1 and 2 fit within that context and we need to keep that in mind. So, so Paul then writing here in these verses has been so overwhelmed by this idea of this great God of mercy. That he begins this chapter, he says, he says, therefore, I urge you, my brethren, or I urge you, brethren, by what? By the mercies of God. So that, so to Paul, as he contemplates these great mercies of God, everything that he says is flowing out of a response to the mercies of God. Now, this week and particularly next week, we're going to talk a lot about the difference between the way the world thinks and the way the Christian is supposed to think. Okay, We're going to talk a lot about that, particularly next week as he talks about not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the ring. So we're going to talk a lot about that, that contrast. Okay, and, and one of the ways in which true, legitimate Christian thinking operates, thinks, is that it thinks out of gratitude. Okay? It just thinks out of gratitude. 
And so, everything that Paul is about to tell us in these next four chapters that we're going to look at about all these various things that we're to do, it's very easy for us as we read through them and we think about, okay, how do we relate to government and how do we relate to people who do things differently in the church and how do we deal with the issue of gifts? And there's all kinds of different issues that Paul is going to talk about in these chapters. And what's easy to happen is we read through those, they just become a list of do's and don'ts for us, right? They just become a list of things. Okay, this is just something else I should do or something else I shouldn't do. And so we make kind of this list and we try to keep this list. But that's not the Christian way of thinking. That's the world's way of thinking, as we'll see. The Christian way of thinking is we look first at God. We look first at what He has done for us. And we are so thankful to God that He has saved us from our sin, has forgiven us, and has shared His glory with us and given us His mercy, that he, we are so overwhelmed with gratitude that we find ourselves simply wanting to please Him and we discover that here are some things that please Him. It pleases Him when we submit to governing authorities. It pleases Him when we don't look down our noses at Christians who do things differently than we do. These are things that please God. And because I am so grateful to God for what He's done, I want to please Him. You know that feeling, right? When your spouse does something that, uh, that, that you're really grateful for, what you find yourself naturally wanting to do is to reciprocate, right? You want to do something that pleases them, you know, if your wife managed to give you a, a really super gift for Christmas that you're really grateful for and, you know, and all you gave her was a new broom and dustpan, you're thinking next year I'm going to really lay it on her because she laid it on me this year, right? Valentine's Day is weird. Yeah. yeah, and it's also called survival of the fittest, right? <laughs> but it's just the natural response of gratitude. And gratitude is not some incidental or secondary thing in the Christian experience or in biblical dogma. Gratitude is central to the whole biblical worldview. It is absolutely central. So much so that remember back early in, in Romans chapter 1, we discovered that one of the great sins, one of the things that led us down the path of degradation that Romans 1 talks about is the failure to give thanks. So it's, very, it's absolutely central to what we are as Christians, this idea of gratitude, and particularly gratitude to God. And so Paul, Paul is what he's going to tell us here about sacrificing and about conformity and, and transforming and all that. All those things he's going to tell us are all rooted in this idea. God, I really am glad for what you did for me. I'm really glad. And so it's by the mercies of God that Paul urges us. And he uses the word here. He could have just simply said, I command you by the mercies of God. 
But he doesn't use the word command. It's, it's a word that's not as strong as the idea of a commandment. Now, that doesn't mean that it's something we can take or leave, okay? Uh, but Paul is speaking here as our brothers. Notice he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. Okay, So he's not speaking here out of his apostolic authority, although he is. Certainly he's speaking as an apostle. But he's coming across not as the big apostle up here who's looking down at you and saying, here's what you need to do and you need to do it because I'm an apostle and I'm telling you to do that. But he's coming to us as our brother. So if Paul were standing here today in this classroom instead of me, and you would be blessed indeed if he were here instead of me. But if Paul were here instead of me, he wouldn't be standing up here going, well, I'm an apostle, you know, and so because I'm an apostle, this is what I'm telling you you must do. But in this, And he does do that in places, of course, in his writings where it was necessary. But here, he just kind of says, listen, I'm just your brother in Christ. And as your brother in Christ, I'm urging you to do this. So it's something that's, that's certainly stronger than just a simple request. Would you please do such and so? But it's not as strong as a commandment. It's the kind of thing that you would, the kind of way you would express yourself to a brother or a sister that you loved in the flesh when you wanted to encourage them to do the right thing. Yeah. And if, you know, and if it was somebody you loved and you had a good working relationship with your brother or sister, and I hope most of you do with your siblings, but if you had a good working relationship with your siblings, you wouldn't say, oh, I command you to do such and so. You'd say, well, you know, let's just, why don't you just do this? Yeah. It would be the right thing to do, and they would be responsible before God and accountable for, before God to do that. But you don't come down on them as this because you don't have that authority. You're not dad, mom. You know, you're just a brother or a sister, and that's how Paul comes across here. It's a, it's a very, it's a very winsome way that he urges us, as our brother in Christ, he urges us. He says, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, or a sacrifice. Living and holy, the way it's written in the Greek, actually. Well, so, so he's, he's urging us, predicated on or based upon the mercy of God, because of God's mercy, he is urging us to make a presentation, a sacrifice, okay? Now, uh, commentators have to bend over backwards on this word presentation. We run across these words uh, in our English translations and we don't, well, oftentimes we don't realize how much behind the scenes work goes on to figure out what really is meant here, okay? Because sometimes it's not all that clear. And, and the word here is, uh, for those of you who are grammarians, the word here is in the is an infinitive in the aorist tense, okay, or in the past tense, as we would say in English grammar, okay, and and so uh, commentators and scholars kind of bend over backwards from here. What exactly is Paul saying here? Is he saying this is a one-time thing that you do? You make a one-time sacrifice because of the use of the the aorist, the past tense. 
uh, is, is a, just a one-time thing. But then on the other hand, what is the fact that it's an infinitive? Uh, what does that imply? The idea of something that's continuing or going on. And I think the best way to understand it is, uh, is that it's, a, uh, it's not just something we do one time and it's done and we don't have to worry about it anymore. But it is an ongoing way of living. Hence, he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Okay, so it's an ongoing way of life. So it's not that we just do it once and it's done for and we never have to think about it again. But it is an it's a lifestyle of living that we live as a as a sacrifice to God. We'll talk more about this concept of living in contrast to a dead sacrifice in a minute. But it's this. It's this. So the idea is that I am making this this presentation that I'm making to God is an ongoing or a repetitive presentation. You might think of it this way: that every morning when I get up, I should be making this presentation to God of my body as a living sacrifice. Okay, so so we're making this uh, presentation to God. We make it on a continual or repeated basis. And what is it that we present? Okay, we're presenting our bodies. Now, again, we have to think about how, how, what, is, what is Paul saying within the historical context in which he's writing. But your body, when you think about it, your body, your physical, material body, is really the only way you have to interact and relate with the world around you. And particularly with other people, right? Okay. So, if you want to communicate with somebody, a person sitting next to you in class, you have to use your body. Okay, you can't send telepathic messages as much as we might wish we could. You know, uh, sometimes we kind of feel like, you know, that that's happened. You know, we feel like somebody can read our mind. OK, but in reality, the only real way to relate to others is through the material body, through our eyes, our voice, our ears, our hands, etc. OK, so our bodies, our physical bodies are the means by which. The inner person, the inner us, interacts with the world. Now, when we're interacting with God, we don't necessarily need our bodies. Sometimes we do employ our bodies. We bow our heads or we kneel or we do other various things to help express our, our, our inner feelings. But, but when we are interacting with people and when we're interacting with, with the rest of the material world, we have to use our bodies. Okay. So, so this is very important to understand that when Paul is talking about this sacrifice that we're making, he's talking about using that part of our being that, that is the part that interacts with the, I was going to use the word real world, but what, what interacts with the material world and what interacts with other people who also have bodies, okay? That's the only way we can communicate. That's the only way we can relate to one another, right? So, 
So what we understand is that the body is an integral part of what we are. Okay. Now this stands in real distinction to what is uh, Platonic thought, which is very popular in the uh, first, second, third centuries, etc. Uh, coming, of course, from Plato, and and that's the and and that view views the material world not as something that's that's good and holy, but it views the material world as really something that's evil, including our bodies. Okay, so what's really good about us in Platonic thought? What's really good about it is the inner self, the soul. Okay, that's that's the good part. And our bodies are just this container that our souls have been imprisoned in or contained in. And, and so the material world, the physical world, and our bodies are, are really kind of evil. Now, that thought, that Platonic view has really permeated Christianity to a large extent. So Christians oftentimes think, think with this dichotomy that the spiritual and the soul is good and the physical is evil. Okay, and and so we tend to downplay the the goodness of the spirit of the physical. Okay, but that's not biblical. That's not the way the Scripture views the material world or our bodies. We have to go back to creation to remember how does how does Scripture portray the body? Well, it's part of creation, isn't it? And when God had completed all of his creation on day six, what did he say? He said, it's very good, right? So our bodies are part of that very good creation. Now, they are fallen, as the rest of creation is, okay? They are fallen. We'll get to that in a minute. But but initially and intentionally, our bodies were something that was good, and holy. And they are an integral part of us. Now, there is going to be a period in time in which there's going to be a separation of the physical from the inner person, right? Paul talks about that time when we die and we are absent from the body, but present with the Lord. So there's going to be a time of separation, but even that time of separation is going to be brought to an end in the resurrection of our bodies. And Paul talks about that too, of course, as the, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so, so these bodies are good and this process of separation from our bodies and then reuniting with our bodies is necessary because of the fall. So when I was saved, my inner man was renewed. My inner man was, was made new. And there was what, this, uh, what some commentators call a realm transfer. I was in this old realm, and we're going to talk a lot about that next week. I was in this old realm, this old age. But when I got saved, my inner man was made new and made into the likeness of Christ. And I was transferred to a new realm but I still have this body and this body is back there in the old realm. And it is saddled with the consequences of the fall. Okay? But that doesn't mean that the body is inherently evil. And so when Paul enjoins us 
to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, he's really running counter to that Platonic thought that was so prevalent in the Greek-speaking world. And actually began, as it became, as I say, uh, to become quite prevalent within Christianity. Okay? But, but in reality, what God's intention for us, as we'll see, what God's intention for us is, is we have our inner man, our inner person, who's now united with Christ and made like Christ, etc., etc., etc. And we have this, we, but we are linked, inextricably linked to this physical body, and it's back here in the old realm. Okay? Now, what God wants us to do, and this is what this, where this process of sacrifice comes in, what God wants us to do is bring that body along towards the new realm. Okay. Now, ultimately, that can't happen until the resurrection. But what He wants us to do is He wants us to make sure that our body, even though it's still living in this fallen world, actually, this body actually acts like it's in the new realm. It wants it to live. He wants, us, he wants our bodies to live and act like they're in the new realm. With the values of the new realm. With the mentality of the new realm. With the conduct of the new realm. So what he wants our bodies to do is he wants, he wants our inner man to be living through our bodies as if we were in heaven. Or as if we were living the values of the kingdom of God. In this old age, in this old realm, in this old fallen world. So, Paul is telling us that our bodies are something that are good, uh, that God wants. God wants these bodies. And He wants these bodies to be an expression of life in the new realm. Even though they are in this old realm. And so... Paul brings up this imagery of sacrifice. And I want us to stop and really think about this idea of sacrifice. Because when Paul is speaking to the Romans here about the idea of presenting your bodies as a sacrifice, both living and holy and acceptable to God, when he's speaking in those terms, he's speaking in an absolutely radical sense. It's very difficult for us in the 21st century to get a picture of how radical what Paul is saying is. Writing to these first century Christians who are living in the city of Rome. Because when we talk about sacrifice today, so and so Sacrifice. How do we use the term? What do we mean? Okay. 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 That that would be part of it. Yeah. Something we gave up. Something. Okay. And why is it given up? Why do we give it up? So for some greater good. Okay. So we might say, well, you know, it's New Year's. It's time for the New Year's resolutions. So this year I'm going to sacrifice all those McDonald hamburgers for the greater good of losing weight. You know, okay. So we tend to use the idea of sacrifice as 
foregoing or forfeiting something because we have some higher good in view. Okay, And that's about as far as we go when we think about the term sacrifice. Sometimes we think on a little bit greater level when, for example, we may think of people in the military who make sacrifices for our freedom, etc., etc. But, but generally the idea of sacrifice is kind of a... It's kind of a low-level term for us compared to what it was in the first century or in the ancient world. Because in the ancient world, this idea of sacrifice was absolutely loaded. Because in the ancient world, what you instinctively thought about when, you, when somebody spoke about sacrifice, you didn't think about some New Year's resolution that somebody might make in order to gain the higher good or, or the, you know, sometimes, you know, you may get a letter from a, from a charitable organization and they say, you know, we need so much money a month to help support these orphans in such and such a place or whatever. And if you will just sacrifice uh, a cup of of, uh, of uh, coffee, uh, you know, once a week, then you can take that money and you can give it to us and we will help support. So, you know, it's kind of the idea of sacrifice is generally kind of low level in our day and age. But in the first century, as Paul is writing this, in the context of the ancient world, the idea of sacrifice involved blood sacrifice. And it had permeated the ancient mind from the days of Cain and Abel until the days of the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century A.D. Everybody did it. Everybody did it. Everybody made blood sacrifices. It was just part of life. Your whole life was centered around this idea of the sacrifices the blood sacrifices that you made. Uh, one writer, a guy by the name of, uh, a contemporary, uh, a modern day writer by the name of Leibhardt, he says, he says about the big cities of the ancient world, he says all cities are sacrificial. And when we think about some of the major cities in the Roman Empire, we think of Carthage in, in Africa, we think of Jerusalem in the, in the Near East, we think of Ephesus in, minor, in Asia Minor, we think of Rome in Europe, all these great cities, they're all centered around or founded on the idea of blood sacrifice, Right? Whether you're a Jew or a pagan, blood sacrifice plays a very important, vital role in life. And, and, and all the great cities of the ancient world are, are founded or are based on the idea of blood. The city of Rome is, is, is founded on the mythological story of, 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 uh, of the sacrifice of Remus, okay? uh, the blood shedding of Remus. The city of Carthage is founded in North Africa, is founded on the idea of, the, of a woman self-sacrificing of herself, her blood sacrifice. The city of Jerusalem is what it is in the ancient world because it is the, 
It is the city to which all Jews come to make blood sacrifices. The city of Ephesus, we read about it in Acts chapter 19. Remember the riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19? What was that about? Do you remember? It was about a threat to the worship of the goddess Artemis, it says in our English translations. It's the goddess Diana. And Ephesus was known, it was renowned as the capital of the worship of Artemis, the worship of Diana. And Paul came in and he started preaching the gospel and people quit buying idols. And they had a riot in the city because the people quit buying idols and quit worshiping and making sacrifices, blood sacrifices, to the goddess Diana. This is the historical context in which Romans 12.1 says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In the city of Rome particularly, and since we're talking about a letter written to Rome, think about the city of Rome. It is a city, as I said, founded on the mythology of a blood sacrifice. It is a city that is absolutely full of temples to various gods. Most of those temples, if not all of them, are places where blood sacrifices are being made. Now, I want you to understand, when I'm talking about blood sacrifices, I'm talking about taking an animal and slitting its throat so that the blood gushes out, and then taking the carcass of that now dead animal and placing it on some kind of a fire, some kind of an altar, and having it totally consumed, and the aroma of that animal ascends into heaven. Okay. But, the idea of blood sacrifice in the ancient world was... I need to do this to appease the gods. I need to do this in order to get favor and mercy from the gods. Or, in some cases, from our ancestors. And so this idea develops, this mentality develops of, of the gods or God having this insatiable bloodlust. He just wants this blood. And, and when, when mankind, in its deep sense of guilt and unworthiness, is seeking somehow to appease these gods who have this horrific, insatiable bloodlust, when you've offered all the animals you can offer and you're still feeling insecure in your relationship with God, what's the next step? Human sacrifice. Human sacrifice. Now, we'd like to think, of course, that Rome, by the first century, is far too sophisticated of a culture to engage in human sacrifice, but in fact, they weren't. In the city of Rome, in the first century, the very city to which this letter is written, where this group of Christians gathers and meets on a regular basis in their homes, is a city in which thousands upon thousands upon thousands of human beings were regularly sacrificed to the gods. 
That happened in several ways. Of course, they had these temples in which these blood sacrifices, animals were sacrificed, okay? But you had the famous Roman triumph. Do you remember the triumph? Remember in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about how Christ always leads us in triumph, how we're always led to triumph in Christ Jesus and, and we are an aroma of life to life and death to death. Remember that passage in Corinthians? Well, when Paul, you know, we have no clue what he's talking about here. <laughs> we're 21st century Americans. But what he's talking about when he's talking about the triumph is he's talking about these huge Rose Bowl parades, okay? Whenever Rome had a great military victory, they would have a great big Macy's Day parade or, or, or Rose Bowl parade. They'd have a great parade. And when the general and the armies came back from their great conquest, they would have these triumphs, these great parades where they would parade through the city of Rome. Okay, and they would carry the plunder from these cities and these countries that they had that they had conquered. They would carry the plunder and they had these huge. I don't know any better way to describe them than floats. They had these great, huge floats and they had all the wealth as they had plundered from these cities piled on these huge floats and they would carry them through the city and they would have the, the army, the Roman army that had that had conquered and defeated, they would have them parading in this parade through the city and there'd be this great celebration. And then, of course, there would be the commander and he would come usually at the end of the parade and he'd be the last one and, and he would come through and he'd be all... And they'd, and they'd be singing his praises and all that sort of thing. But in this great triumph, in this great parade, there are also many of the captives. And many of those captives are destined for slavery in the city of Rome or in the Roman Empire. Okay. But many others were destined to be sacrificed, to be killed and to be sacrificed. With the idea that by sacrificing these captives from these foreign places, by sacrificing these and shedding their blood, we can win the favor of our gods and secure future military triumph. And so there would be, while this triumph is going on, there would be in the city the sacrifice of human flesh. And the aroma of that burning flesh is permeating the city of Rome. Hence, Paul's words in Corinthians about aroma of life to life and death to death. In that passage about the Roman triumph. Puts a totally different spin on that passage, doesn't it? When you think in those terms. That as you are in the city of Rome during one of those triumphs, you are smelling the burning of human flesh. Now, something absolutely revolutionary happened in the first century that absolutely shook the Roman world eventually to its foundations that there began to grow up within the first century a group of people who did not sacrifice. That is, made no blood sacrifices. They refused to do it. It's not that they just didn't bother with it. They refused to do it. 
they decried sacrifices, both animal and human sacrifice. And they began to gain popularity and they began to spread throughout the whole Roman world. These people who no longer believed that sacrifice was necessary or even desirable or good. Who were those people? They were the Christ ones. Now, what was it that altered the mentality of all these tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and eventually millions of people? What is it that altered their mentality from this mentality of the ancient world? And suddenly they began to think, we don't need to make sacrifice. What happened? The, the last sacrifice. The last sacrifice. That Jesus Christ is the last sacrifice. And Christians really believe that. And because they believe that, they no longer felt compelled to make sacrifices. Now, you can imagine what kind of an uproar this causes in the city of Rome. Because this whole idea of offering sacrifices is for what purpose? To appease the gods, to keep them happy, to keep our nation and our city safe and secure and victorious in battle. And now we've got this significant contingent of people in Rome who are not interested in appeasing the gods. Is it any wonder that the Christians were looked at with a great deal of hostility? They were a threat to Roman security. They imperiled the nation and the empire and the city. They were the atheists of the first century. They were called atheists. Why were they called atheists? Because they would not worship the gods of Rome nor sacrifice to them. And, and Rome did not insist that Christians quit worshiping Jesus. It's okay if you want to worship Jesus. Just make sure you worship our gods and sacrifice to them so we can be a successful, prosperous nation. And so you have this radical shift in view and, and this, this radical change. And eventually this begins to move throughout the empire and you get more and more and more people like this who who refuse to offer sacrifices. But it really comes to a head, it comes to a climax in the 4th century with the ascension to the position of emperor of a guy by the name of Constantine. And, you know, people debate about Constantine back and forth, was it good or bad, or, you know, but, but I just want to tell you, Constantine did some really awesome stuff within the context of the culture in which he lived. Okay, you have to keep it all in the cultural context and realize that he lived within a certain world frame just like we do and we have our blind spots and he had his. But one of the things that Constantine did, and I'm not even fully sure that he fully understood the full implications of it when he did it, but one of the things that Constantine did when he became the emperor of Rome and, and, he was, and, and just as he was becoming emperor, he converted to Christianity. And I believe with all my heart that Constantine's conversion was absolutely authentic and real. Okay. But some people don't, but I do. 
But when he converted to Christ, one of the things he did eventually as emperor is he began to ban sacrifices, blood sacrifices throughout the empire and in the city of Rome. Now, you know, with all of our, you know, modern contemporary views of religious liberty, also you may have some, some objection to that. I don't know. But what we have to understand is what that did in Constantine's day. When every city was founded, when every city was a sacrificial city. When Paul says in Rome, we will no longer offer sacrifices. He was... Whether he fully realized it or not, what he was doing was he was altering the concept of what Rome was as a city. And he was acknowledging, this is, I'm trying to get you to understand how revolutionary this idea is. To us in the 21st century, we don't understand this. He was acknowledging that there was a higher reality, that there was a higher order than the city of Rome than the Roman polity. There's a, there, there, was a greater, there was a greater something there than Rome itself. It was absolute heresy in Constantine's day. He shook the Roman world when he said, we're no longer going to offer suffering. Now, it took a long time for that to actually take effect. And, you know, there's some question about the degree to which his decrees in that regard were successful. But it was just, it was a, it was a, it was a sea change that was saying to the whole ancient world, we're no longer... Now, we don't think anything about it today. Because we don't know anywhere where they make blood sacrifices today, do we? Do you know any place where they make blood sacrifices? You know, except maybe some witch's coven or something somewhere. But, but, I mean, it's just unheard of. In the Western modern world, it's unheard of. Why is it unheard of? It's unheard of because of the impact of the church of Jesus Christ who viewed sacrifice as coming to an end, blood sacrifice as coming to an end in Christ. And there is no longer a necessity for it. The wrath of God has been satisfied forever in that one sacrifice. So now we are left with a whole group of people who no longer need to make blood sacrifices because they no longer need to seek the mercy of God because they've already got it. It's already been secured for them in Christ. And we have a whole group of people to whom blood sacrifice is no longer necessary. Does that mean then that as Christians there's no call for sacrifice? No. Paul says, out of your gratitude to God for His mercy, offer your bodies, not as a blood sacrifice. You don't have to die in this process. You've got to do something harder. <laughs> You've got to live sacrificially. So we then, he says, are to present our bodies a sacrifice living and holy. So the idea there is that what, what I now, in response of gratitude to God, 
what I am now urged by Paul to do is to, with this body, on a daily basis, use my body and go around making my body an instrument of righteousness, as he says in Romans chapter 6. Right? So no longer present your bodies to sin, but present your bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. Present the members of your bodies as instruments of righteousness. And so, my job today, on December 29th, 2013, my job today is to take this body that I've got and employ it in every single thing it does in serving God. He says in Corinthians, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do it for the glory of God. So when I sit down to the dinner table today, my mentality should be, God, this is for you. That's pretty cool because I like eating. (laughs) And the better the food, the better I like it. And I can do it just for the gratification of the flesh or I can do it for the glory of God. And Paul says, in everything that I do, whether I eat or drink, to do all for the glory of God. So I no longer make blood sacrifices to appease them or appease God and, and somehow secure His mercy, but I make a living sacrifice of my body. Holy, he says. Holy means separate or set apart. So my body then, I set it apart and I don't, I don't live for the world and I don't live for the motives and the desires and the intentions of the world. We'll get into that in verse 2. No longer be conformed to the world. Okay. We'll get into that next verse, next week. So, I, I no longer, my body is no longer dedicated to those things or to the gratification of the flesh. But everything I do is for God. And everything you can do, everything you do with your body can be for God. That's hard to believe, I know. It's hard to believe when you're in there scrubbing the toilet that that can be for God. Especially when it's just your toilet, not somebody else's. But it can be. Isn't that what Paul says? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. When you're out there mowing your lawn in the middle of August and you're sweating like crazy and you think you're just mowing the lawn just because the neighbors insist that your grass be short, just stop for a minute and go, okay, God, I'm sorry. I'm not doing this for the neighbors. I'm doing it for you. Or whether I'm giving some money to the Lottie Moon offering in December uh, or January, whatever it is, our bodies are instruments to be used for God's glory and for His righteousness. And it's a totally different mindset, isn't it? Then our mindset is everything I do is, God, this is for you. And I, I don't even know how this works for you, God. I don't know how it works for you when I'm lying on my back under the sink trying to fix a leaky faucet, you know. I don't know how this works for your glory, but God, I just dedicate this to you. This is for you, God. A living sacrifice, which is whole and acceptable. And then he says it is your, uh, in the King James, I think he says it's your reasonable service of worship. In the New American Hair, it says it's your spiritual service of worship. Uh, it's a kind of a loaded term, and the reason it's translated a bunch of different ways is because it has a lot of different nuances to it. But, but I think the best way to think of it is see, what he's saying is, is this is the worship that's really real for those of us who are children of God. This living sacrifice. This is true worship. 
And one of the translations says, this is your true worship. Okay. This is true worship. Remember when Jesus says, you know, some worship this way and some worship that way. Uh, as he's talking to the woman of the well, he says, but the day is coming when those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. This is true worship. True worship is the giving of our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. We're going to get up from this class. We're going to go in the other room. And we're going to sit in what we call a worship service. But that is only a tiny fragment of a Christian's worship. The greater part of your worship will be this week as you leave this building and you go out and you ask yourself, God, how can I use my body as an instrument of righteousness this week for your glory? There's a whole lot more connected with this as we'll get into in verse 2 next week.